we take a look at Spider-Man in his original alien costume in the Alien Costume Saga Book 1. And then we uh, examine some Batman and Robin comics from 1942 and 1943 straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. The Alien Costume Saga Book 1 is a big collection of Spider-Man stories from all three of the Spider-Man books that were running in 1984, Amazing Spider-Man and uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, and Marvel Team-Up. And we'll take a look at each one of these in course. Now, the book begins with the uh, pages from Secret Wars, uh, the Marvel miniseries, where the best heroes and the best villains in the Marvel world were taken to Battle World by the Beyonder to battle to determine which is better, uh, good or evil. It's a classic story, and it is from this story that Spider-Man got his new uh, costume. He just woke up and found it on one day. And uh, we take a look uh, at the aftermath of that. It starts in Amazing Spider-Man number 252, which really marked the true start of Tom DeFalco's run as the writer of Amazing Spider-Man. He had taken over in the middle of the previous uh, Hobgoblin arc, but he'd been operating off of a story that had been by Roger Stern. So here he is really assuming full control of the title. And in issue 251, that ended with Spidey disappearing and uh, 252 has him reappearing after having been absent for some time. And I kind of like how they do this, because oftentimes, you you know, when you're, you're dealing with uh, a big event like this, you know, the whole book gets suspe- suspended and interrupted, whatever storylines are going on, and it'll happen across the whole company. What they did in this case is they actually had it so they returned from the Secret Wars, but without any explanation. Uh, and Spotty said that, uh, Reed Richards said, encouraged them just not to talk about it. Uh, because, uh, people, you know, didn't need to be burdened with the knowledge of what had happened or nearly happened in the course of the Secret Wars. And there's a certain logic to that, but uh, it allows them to use the this to tease uh, Secret Wars. Because if you were reading uh, this book uh, in 1984, suddenly Spider-Man's got a black costume, and it had something to do with what happened in Secret Wars, and that's going to automatically make you want to read it. It's clever marketing, and it also doesn't uh, mess too much with the book's ongoing story. So, I like it. I understand you can't do that with every big event, but I think it really does work well here. After he returns with uh, Kurt Connors, a.k.a. the Lizard, you get kind of an establishing shot 
of where Spotty is at at this point in his uh, life and the challenges he's facing. Uh, again, just kind of establishing a baseline quo for uh, Tom DeFalco's run. And then you get a little bit of him web-slinging and some reactions to the new costume with people uh, a little bit uh, nervous by it. Uh, and then he, he comes across this young couple who are fighting um, about a concert that the uh, uh, guy had promised to take the girl on and he was reneging on it and she was upset. And so he grabs them and takes them web-slinging across the city. The guy really not liking it, but the girl kind of enjoying the view and wanting to stay and enjoy it. And afterwards, he drops them off, and the guy runs away, but the girl stays behind and tells Spotty that you're a nice guy, but awful weird. It's a really uh, nice, fun uh, way to start DeFalco's run. Uh, from there, plot-wise, really for the next uh, several issues, uh, it it really does feel like you just kind of get into a villain of the month uh, groove. Uh, in issue 253, uh, you're dealing with uh, a football player who is actually taking... Uh, uh, bribes to throw games. Uh, the gambler who is uh, paying him off, uh, the Rose, wants him to throw a playoff game, but he refuses to do it. And there are consequences, and it's kind of a typical story, but the Rose does turn out to be a much more uh, important character. Uh, so that one does come uh, back to pay off. Uh, then in issue 254, you have Spider-Man fighting the Jack-O-Lantern, and then in 255, it's the Red Ghost. Uh, I think the book uh, gains some uh, momentum in 256 when uh, the Rose hires the uh, Puma, who is a assassin uh, for hire from New Mexico, to come out and hunt down a Spider-Man. And uh, that uh, story works across 256 and 257. Um, and I think is um, effective. And there's also even hints in 258, uh, he, he ends up being uh, called to withdraw from the uh, contract, uh, mainly because Kingpin has plans of his own for Spider-Man that don't include killing him at this point. And in fact, those plans were playing out in the pages of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. But the Puma is still interested in uh, a Spider-Man even after he's uh, called off the case. There are also some themes and plot points that work throughout all seven issues of Amazing Spider-Man to uh, one degree or another. Uh, the first is uh, Aunt May's uh, disappointment when she finally learns that Peter made the decision to uh, to leave graduate school for the time being. Um, and her disappointment is understandable, but it's at a point where she will not uh, talk to Peter at all. And uh, it's because she is so disappointed and upset that he would make this decision. To me, I, I think it's a bit over the top. 
I, I mean, because a lot of people do not make it through graduate school. It's a really challenging environment. Uh, people who started out, and you don't have this sort of uh, reaction. Um, I do think Peter's hurt a little bit by not being able to really fully explain because he's trying to balance a lot of things. And part of his decision is based on his uh, relationship with uh, Black Cat uh, at the time, which we'll get to talking about a little bit later. Um, Nathan, who uh, lives with Aunt May, initially tries to play the role of Peacemaker. And he's able to get uh, May out out uh, to a restaurant and places a call to Peter to uh, get him to come out. However, Peter is sidetracked by some Spider-Man business and as a result misses the lunch date and that leaves Nathan willing to uh, uh, just uh, throw Peter under the bus and uh, won't even let him talk to Aunt May. And I think, again, that's a bit uh, troublesome, you know, where you just spring this appointment on someone in the middle of their day. You know, it's not something that had been, you know, scheduled uh, at all. Uh, And to take that sort of, again, the reactions seem to be a bit over the top in this particular uh, plot thread. Um, Then uh, you have Robbie as... uh, now uh, becoming editor-in-chief of the Daily Bugle, after uh, J. Jonah Jameson uh, unethical uh, actions in his pursuit of Spider-Man, particularly in regards to the creation of the Scorpion, in order to uh, take the ability for people such as the Hobgoblin to blackmail him. And it's interesting just because uh, Robbie had been more of a defender of Spider-Man and an advocate for uh, Peter. But as editor-in-chief, he really does seem to be stepping up the... stepping up the uh, level of quality he's expecting from Peter and providing some really serious and fair critiques, which does create some additional challenges uh, for Peter uh, as he's trying to, you know, make a living with his uh, photography. Uh, And uh, you have a hobgoblin uh, uh, emerging. Uh, Towards the end of this, we we only get a few glimpses, so where this is going, we'll probably uh, learn a bit more in the second book. And then you have the return of Mary Jane. Uh, And she had been coming back into the book. I think DeFalco starts to really fill in her character. And we learn things like that she has known that Peter is Spider-Man for a long time. And part of the reason that she'd gone away is that she was concerned about the amount of danger he was putting himself into. And she has some stuff that... Again, you start to get a beginning of it coming out, and you get a sense that there is more to come. Um, the costume, you know, this book is called The Alien Costume Saga, but really the costume plays a lot uh, less of a role than you would typically think. You know, if you're like me and you grew up with Spider-Man, the animated uh, uh, series, you saw the Alien Costume series where it began to really radically affect uh, Peter's personality 
and uh, his overall behavior, it really doesn't uh, do a lot. It doesn't enhance his abilities, other than he does get these, you know, natural uh, web shooters as part of the uh, costume. Uh, it doesn't give him, like, added strength or added aggression or really anything like that that we see in this particular uh, story. Um, and in fact, the costume is just kind of there and it gives him the benefit of just being able to, you know, quickly uh, change into it automatically uh, and to, you know, retract it so that it's only, uh, uh, it's covering everything but his face and it's responsive to his commands. And actually the first hint we get of trouble uh, comes in issue 257, where after his first battle with uh, Puma, the black cat sees this uh, go, uh, go off his body, and it was things were not working quite as expected. And uh, Peter said, I don't know what's going on. It's usually more responsive. I, I don't know what's wrong with it. And she looks at it and says, what could be right with it? Um, and as much issues as the black cat has as a uh, girlfriend to Spider-Man, you got to give her credit for seeing that. And in fact, in issue 252, it had been referenced that Reed Richards wanted to take a look at the costume, but he, he delayed uh, doing it. And when we get into issue 258, there has been just a big uh, blow up uh, because you have Mary Jane show up and then you had a black cat show up at the same time. And there's a bunch of tension uh, between them and he's feeling like his life's out of control. And one thing I really like in there is there's a frame, uh, Ron friends, just does this great job of drawing this where Peter just becomes smaller and smaller as he's thinking about how out of control he feels his life is. And then we get a, a scene where, you know, Peter is lied down in bed and the costume, uh, Put, puts itself on him. So the costume is in effect wearing Peter and it just goes out web slinging. Now, if you saw the version in the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon series, uh, in that version, he does a lot of stuff. You know, the, the costume, you know, uh, fights people and does all that. Uh, that's not in this particular uh, take in the original story. It's just a situation where the costume goes web-slinging. And that really is kind of freaky enough, the idea that the costume is wearing you. And he does go to the Fantastic Four, and Reed Richards has actually suspected this for some time, but didn't see a reason to make this a bit more urgent other than, you know, because if somebody says to me, okay, you know, come on in, you know, when you get a chance. I'm not going to think it's a big deal, you know, because Reed Richards has got scientific curiosity about something great. Um, but, you know, you've got life. But, you know, you might want to make it feel like it's a bit more urgent if you suspect that this is a life form that may have some ulterior motive. 
And there is a challenge in getting the suit off Peter, but it's not as great as, you know, the way that it'd be written in cartoon series. And uh, Peter is, in fact, left uh, naked, which leaves him to be dressed by uh, Johnny Storm, who gives him an old FF uh, costume and a paper bag on Peter's head. And what Peter doesn't know is that Johnny is still showing, you know, that even though the Fantastic Four have been around for 20 years, he's as mature as he ever was. He puts a kick-me sign on. It felt a little Silver Age-ish, but I thought it was okay and kind of did fit their uh, rivalry. And it ends with uh, the costume uh, imprisoned uh, in a uh, case in the Baxter building. And uh, that would be pretty much, you know, where it would end in this book. So you've got very little of the costume. You do get a scene... Uh, in another one of the comics, I believe in the Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man uh, number 95, uh, you get to see that it is there and it is waiting to uh, take its revenge. Speaking of Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man, I may be in the minority on this, but I actually think this may have been the better book. Uh, because of the relationship with the black cat, and I think it is really interesting, uh, the way that it plays out. Uh, in issue 90 of, uh, of, Sp uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, you just have black cat going around trying to find out where Peter is gone. And you also do begin to run into one of the big problems with her uh, as his uh, girlfriend. And that's that uh, she's essentially addicted to the fantasy of being the costumed uh, person and not being the person behind the mask to such a degree that she doesn't even want to see Peter's face. And uh, actually, in her efforts to find him, he, she just kind of goes in costume and asks a lot of Peter's friends uh, and family if they have seen him, which could raise a lot of questions, though nobody seems to really make the connections right away. Uh, and also so that she could help him fight crime and really be a partner that was on the same level, she went searching for a superpower and she got it by making a deal with the kingpin. And uh, the power she got essentially allows her, at least from what we see uh, at this point in the story, it allows her to affect uh, the luck of people who try to uh, attack her or uh, are coming to try and hurt her, that they will start to have uh, bad luck. And uh, that uh, works in uh, quite a few ways. It works uh, when she and Peter go up against the uh, blob, uh, in uh, one issue of Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. And she's also able to save Spotty from uh, the Puma in Amazing Spider-Man for the same reason. 
So I think it's an interesting relationship, even while we see that it's going to have big problems, particularly as she's trying to hide that she's done a deal with the kingpin. Uh, and, uh, uh, then you have, uh, the idea that the King Benny didn't just give her powers thinking, you know, uh, someday she'll return the favor, but he has a definite end game in mind. And it really works out that the Kingpin has got a quite complex plan going on. He has a supervillain working for him called The Answer, which if if The Answer were not written right, it would be so easy to write this character wrong. Uh, he is someone who, uh, he's got this verbal tick of uh, speaking about being the answer, having the answer, and... Uh, but he is really mysterious and cool, and he works, I think, particularly not having to be the main villain, but being like the main face, but representing the kingpin. And the kingpin's plot really uh, develops, and there's so much going on with it, because uh, you have, uh, emerging the book, you have... Uh, a zombie cyborg uh, Silvermane, and you also have a cloak and dagger emerge. And there are so much uh, going on, and the plan feels very complex, and like everything is working together towards one big end. And uh, it's a really riveting storyline, and I like how they kind of, there are just so many layers to it, in the way that the Peter Parker uh, Spectacular Spider-Man story is uh, told. So I enjoyed that probably more than The Amazing Spider-Man, even though it had less to do with the alien costume, although there was another incident of the costume taking him a web-slinging. And then that brings us to Marvel Team-Up number 141 to 145 and annual number 7. And uh, one, f and these are essentially have very little to do with the costume other than uh, Spotty wearing it. Uh, issue 141 is a team up with Daredevil, who at this point had been written by Frank Miller, and as such was a much more of a gray character than he had been in the past. And uh, as part of this story, uh, Spidey finds out near the end that uh, Daredevil had struck a deal with uh, Kingpin. And Spidey calls him on it and uh, says, you know, we're supposed to be heroes. And I thought it was a good contrast of character. Um, and then I like the, the end part where, you know, after afterwards, you know, Spidey's leaving and he's like... Why didn't he ask me about the new costume? Um, and of course, Daredevil blind. But I thought it was a, a cute ending. Uh, number 142 finds a team up with Captain Marvel and uh, Monica Rambeau as they deal with a bunch of orange and green suited thugs. And, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, battle, and they work their way uh, back through uh, what's going on to find the big boss, and he explains that they are with Pride, uh, which is, 
is population reduction by interdimensional expulsion, which plans to reduce the Earth's population through a generator, generator that will uh, send uh, people who are on Earth into another dimension, thus uh, killing them, uh, but solving the population problem as they solve it. And with an acronym like PRIDE, you wonder if the supervillain... Uh, uh, thought up the acronym first or the evil plan that goes with it. Uh, issue 143 is a follow-up because uh, Monica Rambeau ended up stuck in energy form and it's up to uh, Star Fox and Spider-Man to get her out and to wrap up the storyline. Issue 144 is a team-up with Moon Knight and they kind of uh, stumbling into a Tong War and uh, one man who can stop it uh, is has decided to renounce violence. And so Spider-Man and Moon Knight have to work around it. And I think it's a pretty fair story. Um, I do question the degree to which Spidey is written as uh, challenging the uh, guy who uh, uh, renounced violence. That doesn't strike me as a particular Spidey thing to do. Uh, and then you have annual number seven, which is with Alpha Flight. And I found that a bit dull and even a little confusing at times. And then issue 145 is technically a team up between Spider-Man and Iron Man, uh, with Jim Rhodes. However, it ends up being taken over by Whiplash, who was in, uh, Iron Man uh, villain from back in the day, but has uh, retired and tried to go legitimate and is struggling to do so. And the story tries to make us feel sorry for him as he does return to a life of crime and take vengeance on people at a bar who didn't give him respect. And I I think that uh, while I get what they were going for and the challenge that you would face as a uh, supervillain in being given a chance to earn people's respect and overcome uh, past uh, difficulties um, I think it was a bit ham-fisted and uh, the character you do find it hard to root for him the way that it's written uh, so I don't find it particularly effective. And I do think at this point, Marvel team-up was actually towards the end of the road. And you can kind of see a lot of these stories as just feeling a bit obligatory rather than having real solid ideas for team-up. And I think that does hurt the uh, book. But uh, not that much overall. I think the amazing and spectacular books were really solid. And this is a really good era for uh, Spider-Man. So I'm going to give the Alien Costume Saga Book 1 a rating of Classy. Now we turn to uh, the Batman Chronicles Volume 8. And this was a paperback series uh, that... Uh, went through all of the Batman books. They got up to volume 11. This will probably be the last one that I do. I'll probably switch over to the uh, Batman Golden Age uh, series, which covers it with somewhat uh, bigger volume, same material, 
Uh, but this particular one collects issues 71 through 74 of Detective Comics and Batman 14 and 15, as well as World's Finest Comics number 8 and 9. It's 192 pages, and I should say that the Batman... Uh, comics actually had four stories per issue in them. So we're going to go ahead and take a look at the uh, stories in the book, and I'm going to separate them into two categories. The supervillains uh, stories and uh, the non-supervillain stories. Uh, because, and this is the one thing you do have to give to a Golden Age Batman, is that you really have a rogues gallery established early. Uh, this book, uh, the comics here, uh, come from uh, 1942 and 43, and that's just, you know, three years after Batman had uh, been out. And you've got five supervillains, four that are really well-known, and one that is maybe a little bit more obscure, but still a threat and still kind of interesting. Uh, so, uh, first of all, in the uh, Batman uh, number 14, uh, we get uh, a story with the Penguin called Bargains in Banditry. And the idea of this story is that the Penguin is setting himself up as a bit of a criminal consultant uh, with the idea that the criminals will pay him a portion of their proceeds and he'll plan the uh, crimes form that they go out and they commit. Uh, and I think this is a good idea for the Penguin. Uh, my problem with this particular story is where it goes because the Penguin actually... Uh, kills the people who go out and commit the crimes uh, uh, so that he can take all of their load. And that is a bit extreme, I think, for the Penguin in this particular era in uh, the comics to just be doing that. And, of course, it's a big flaw in the matter of doing business because people are going to figure out what you're doing and you're dealing with some dangerous man, even if you're dangerous yourself. A crime, a crime a day is the, uh, is a j joker story. And essentially Batman is giving like daily speeches. It's a weird idea that, uh, you know, he goes out into a convention hall area and just gives this daily speech. And he says something that insults the joker. And so the Joker uh, decides, you know what, I'm going to get even with Batman. I'm going to humiliate him by committing a crime every single day. Um, and I have mixed feelings on this. I think the crime a day thing does fit the Joker, but it's almost, I, I think his reaction is, it's the opposite of my concern with the Penguin. It's just uh, a little uh, less uh, violent and murdery than you typically would expect of the Joker. And so it's weird. It's like they have the uh, Penguin too much, the Joker too little. Then you have your face is your fortune. And uh, essentially this is a Catwoman story where uh, she is actually... Uh, trying to act like she's reforming 
and in the course of acting like she's reforming, uh, she is working at a nail salon and using the information she gains uh, in order to uh, rob people. And there's also a little bit of a romance uh, between her and Bruce Wayne, and it and I, I think it's an interesting story, and it's probably the one in here that I like the most and is closest uh, to how Catwoman typically works, both in general and in the Golden Age. Uh, Return of the Scarecrow has the Scarecrow going on a crime spree, and this one did not impress me. Um, you know, he calls it a reign of terror, and, you know, the big thing with Scarecrow is creating fear, but he's not really doing anything in that regard. It's just a typical a crime spree. Uh, nothing uh, special or interesting or particularly Scarecrowish about it. Uh, then you also get in here the introduction of Tweedledum and Tweedledee. These aren't the, um, uh, best villains, uh, but they uh, have had a few appearances over the years, and I think they work pretty well in here. Um, essentially, they are near-identical cousins who go out and commit uh, a series of crimes. I do like the way that they are designed. Uh, they are short, fat guys, but they don't look normal. There is this sort of uh, sense of the uh, grotesque about them, that I think really does show uh, good character design. Maybe it's a little more Dick Tracy than your typical Batman character, but I did enjoy it, and I thought the story was, at the very least, okay. Um, then we've got some, and I'm not going to talk about every one of the non-supervillain case. We've got the case Batman failed to solve. And essentially, the plot is that there is a meeting of all the world's great detectives, and one of them appears to be murdered, and the rest set out to solve the case. Uh, Batman does actually figure out what had happened, um, which is that the guy had uh, killed himself, and since he was just in the whole detective mystery solving thing as a way to, uh, like entertain himself, uh, he, uh, essentially, uh, just did not, uh, care, and he wanted just to leave this an unsolved mystery for the rest of the team. And so Batman claims not to be able to solve it, I guess, to meet this last request for this guy who uh, was just um, a bit of a pain, even though he did not actually specifically request that. A prescription for happiness is kind of an odd one where the hero and the person that Batman and Robin end up helping out is the local uh, druggist. And it's weird to have that uh, entire profession being portrayed as just this absolutely noble thing. Uh, which we, you know, and I think certainly people who do become pharmacy techs, you know, they do want to help people. But we just don't think about it that way. But uh, perhaps the drugstore was a bigger part of American life in the 1940s, and it kind of captures that sense. 
swastika over the White House and two futures. Uh, those were in Batman 14 and 15, and those were essentially the propaganda stories of the uh, issues. Um, with uh, really just trying to press uh, Batman and Robin into doing more work around the war. And uh, in Swastik over the White House, they stop a spy. In Two Futures, they really get to see what the world might look like if they uh, lost. And you might say that it's a bit of uh, propaganda, but I also think there's probably more truth to it than uh, we might care to admit. Uh, license for Larceny. Uh, this one is about a criminal syndicate headed by a criminal known as the judge. And he essentially wants to control uh, crime through his sort of extrajudicial means and his uh, judicial. In some ways, it does call to mind the Penguin story, just taking it from a slightly different angle. Uh, this one isn't bad, but it does feel like it repeats a lot of the feel of uh, previous issues. Uh, the Boy Who Wanted to Be Robin is about a kid who wants to be Robin, but is tricked by a guy who claims to be Batman, but is so obviously a crook. So it's about a gullible kid. But uh, there are some nice moments between Robin and this particular kid. The loneliness... Uh, Loneliest Men in the World is a fun Christmas time story. Batman and Robin converting the Batmobile into this really Christmassy sleigh and trying to bring some cheer into the lives of the three loneliest people in the world. And this is a uh, really uh, fun story with some very sweet moments and a good lesson. It's a decent Christmas story, probably not up to the level of uh, the stuff that Will Eisner was doing with the spirit, but not bad. And then you've got Crime of the Month, which seems like an ideological co uh, cousin to the uh, Penguin story uh, with uh, the... Uh, uh, bargains and banditry just kind of taken from a different way just uh, trying to steal from criminals from your own uh, for your own dishonest reasons and so i do see a lot of the same themes going through uh, overall i didn't think that this was uh, a bad book but i kind of struggled with uh how to uh rate the book overall uh, because there's a lot that uh, needed cleaned up and a lot that did require dressing. But, but for this particular volume, I'm going to give this book a rating of uh, somewhat classy. Uh, by no means is this a great book, but there were several stories I liked in here, including the Christmas story. The Catwoman adventure was pretty good and i think that there were some good moments in here for uh, batgirl but many of the villains don't ring true and certainly the lack of resistance to uh, immobilizing the prisoners is also a bit worrying still uh, i will stand by giving this rating of somewhat classy and we're giving a rating of classy to spider-man the alien costume saga book one That'll do it for today. Join us back here next time for another episode of the Classic Comics uh, Podcast. Uh, be sure and rate me on iTunes. 
rate and review the podcast on iTunes. But until next time, from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.